Hello, and welcome back to another episode of In the Green Room. I am your host, Margie Zarcone, and I'm joined today by Derek Liakis, who has written Vista Grande. Thank you so much for joining me, Derek. Thanks for having me, Margie. I actually wore my turquoise because... Oh, I love it, yeah. Because Vista Grande is in New Mexico. Yeah, you got to lean into those Southwestern vibes. I mean, that's... that's got to lean in. I didn't have time to get my tan and dye my hair blonde, but... You know, you, you got to work with what's available to you, you know? It's, just... <laughs> it's like backstage, but there's no stage. It's the standby for places green room. Welcome to In the Green Room. So, Derek, you wrote Vista Grande for this medium. And it's uh, a story of an estranged father and daughter who are reuniting for the first time in this kind of isolated town. Is it, is it a real town in New Mexico? No, I mean, it's inspired by real places, but I made, you know, I made the name up. So <laughs> I just, I wanted to, I don't know, I like making up towns. That's as silly as that sounds, like in a lot of things that I've written, I I think creating a unique identity and not having to like shoehorn a story or into a place in some place that already exists is kind of interesting to me. You kind of get to build it from the ground up. And I think because it's such a specific place and I couldn't like go to New Mexico and like drive around and like find the exact town that I felt it was, I, I kind of just imagined it. And so I picked a name that I thought would be appropriate for the place I envisioned. It's interesting because it provides you with a lot more freedom to create the world and the ambiance that these characters live in and you don't have to be pigeonholed yeah, definitely. by some and, real place. And when I uh, titled the play after the town, I felt like, uh, you know, having some ownership in that way because I, you know, created it myself was kind of nice. It wasn't like I was just borrowing the name of some town where like 5,500 people live somewhere out in like the desert. You know, I liked the idea that it was like existed just in this for this, you know, one play and for the podcast. Vista Grande means big view, mm -hmm. which I think also can be tied back to these characters' visions, especially, especially the father. Well, let's hear a little bit about the plot first. Yeah. Um, so essentially, boiling it down. The play is about uh, the adult daughter of a man who abandoned the family decades before and he's reached out to her and basically has attempted to try and reestablish connection after all these years. And so she travels to this kind of remote desert town in the southwest where he's been living to essentially re-meet him after not having seen him for, you know, 35 years. Um, and, you know, I thought it would be really interesting to explore that dynamic between estranged family members that, you know, once had a really beautiful father-daughter relationship and then via circumstance and personal choice, haven't seen each other in so long or, you know, the, the character Juliet, the daughter is like 39, 30 or 40. So she basically hasn't seen this man for the majority of her life. At one point, uh, Juliet is speaking to her father and, and he says uh, that her sister was always your mother's daughter and you were always my daughter. And I have to say, when I heard it, 
the first time I listened to it, it, it stung because I was looking at it from her perspective and thinking, wow, that, that would be a really heartbreaking thing to hear from someone who left you. Yeah. Why, you saw me as an extension of you and you left me. Yeah, you left me behind anyway. And that's, yeah. And I think you do see that in families. I mean, where, you know, often a kid is favors one parent's personality and they just kind of, they're in sync with each other in a way that maybe another kid is with the other parent or maybe not, you know, it, it really just varies. But I've known families where like very clearly one kid was like a copy of the mom and the other kid was a copy of the dad. And you could see how it breaks down in the dynamics of the relationships. And when you kind of, when you're growing up and I think you don't have that mirror of who you are, who you could be when you lose that, which Juliet lost the parent that she was more similar to, probably disposition, personality, everything. It kind of removes your guide of how you can move into parenthood or adulthood, not parenthood. Um, she is pregnant, though, so parenthood for herself too. But um, which is interesting, and I think brings up interesting ideas of you know how we mold children as parents and how you know, nurture versus nature kind of gives birth to different types of people. And when you don't have, and obviously a lot of people are adopted and so they're not raised by biological parents and, you know, they end up just fine and have great relationships. But I like the idea of these two people being very simpatico with each other and really interconnected. And then for him to make the choice to leave her, what kind of scars are left behind when like, the parent that you know really truly sees you makes a choice to not be in your life. I think we're always fascinated too with whoever the absent character is in a piece because it says so much about the other people who are there. And I felt like this is a very intimate piece, especially just listening to it and not seeing it play out on stage. Mm -hmm. It's almost like this is the missing part of the story. You would think that the story would be about the family after the father leaves. Mm -hmm. But this is filling in the gap of this is the character that wasn't present and now we're meeting them for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always gonna be like inherent mystery about somebody that chooses to remove themselves from you know, a family or any type of situation and the questions around that, how you can do that, why you can do that, the justifications, I think are really interesting. And I didn't want it to be like fresh trauma because to me, I was curious to see how this dynamic would play out when there really has been a lot of time mm -hmm. to, you know, I don't want to say heal because how do you ever really get over something like that, but at least to just have moved on and probably have gone to therapy and worked through a lot of these feelings and a lot of these issues. And I think that, you know, for a character like Juliet, she's convinced herself that she's made peace with this, but then it becomes quickly apparent that it's still a very raw situation for her after all this time, because, you know, to have a parent leave you like that, I think is really, you know, to get, you can't just walk away from that pain. And it's always gonna kind of follow you around like a storm cloud. and. So to have an idea that you've like done this work and you're in a good place and you've, you know, maybe not forgiven this person, but you've at least accepted the reality of what happened 
and then to be confronted with like, you know, like it's all still there. It's, you know, like all that work has not necessarily been towards any means of resolution. That's always such a rough feeling when you feel like you've overcome something. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it can unravel. It's like kind of like if you go through a breakup and you think you're doing really well and then like you see your ex at like a bar and you're like, it's suddenly it's like all floods back, right? You're just like, oh, like fuck. <laughs> yeah, the, like the body remembers yeah. everything. What was your reasoning in choosing the Southwest as your setting? So, you know, I'm from New York and I live in LA. And so I've only ever been like a coastal boy. And I was kind of interested in the psychology of somebody who was also from New York or from the coast who chooses to kind of move to someplace that's so radically different from where they grew up and where they're from. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think New Mexico is an amazing place. It's like, you know, I think the creative community, the artistic community in Santa Fe is really beautiful. And I wanted it to be like in that vicinity, but kind of more remote from that, just because I wanted it to be somebody that was almost hiding. He's out, you know, the character is living his life truly, but he's almost in hiding from his past. You know, I think he's rebuilt this new life for himself here and he's, you know, this vital member of the community and beloved and all of these things. And, you know, he's really made a go of this place and kind of made it his own. But in a sense, he, he did pick a place, whether, you know, he says in the play that he like, they closed their eyes, laid out a map and just put his finger down. And I did like that idea, but I think if that was intentional. They were trying to find someplace kind of off the beaten path that they could start fresh without, you know, kind of the ghosts of their past and the, you know, that they could remove themselves from kind of the wreckage of the choices that they made. This couple that decided to run off together and everyone, you know, who had to deal with the consequences of their decisions. So that's kind of why I picked it. And I don't know. And it just sounded the more action. fun in like Midwest or something. <laughs> yeah, that, that's... It's like, they moved to Ohio. Like it's like, that's not... <laughs> It's not that they moved to Western New York, outside yeah, of know, Buffalo. Exactly. There's something about like, you know, big, some big cacti in the yard and like, just like the kind of, it feels so radically different than like, than, you know, New York City suburbs. And I wanted it to have this sense of otherness, especially for the daughter who's moved to San Francisco. And so she's kind of done the coastal thing too. And, you know, I just wanted it to feel like, she was almost on a foreign planet coming to visit him. Like it was like, you know, it was so radically different than anywhere she had ever known or ever lived. And to see him there and how he was doing in this place, because it's like the environment shapes you so much, I think. And it's kind of fascinating to explore how people are influenced by either the places they're born that they don't have a say in or where they choose to move as an adult on their own because it speaks to their soul. And so, yeah. That's fascinating. I, there's also such a distinct choice in, there really was no importance to the place. It was yeah. what the place represented. Yeah, it was not like, oh, I like, you know, really love a, like a desert climate and I'm really into turquoise. It was like, uh, you know, was, yeah, it, it is deeper than that because it just was, you know, and for them, 
for Michael, it was basically like an Eden. It was this unattainable thing that he had, you know, never been able to have or let himself have for so long. And just, you know, I also kind of, I'm not going to lie. I probably, I just thought of this and I just realized maybe it was subconscious, but I think of the song Santa Fe from Newsies <laughs> and what that represents for, Yeah. I think his name is Jack. Um, yeah. And maybe that was in the back of my head, <laughs> I'm just realizing, you know, like there is something about a place you've never been, but kind of the mystique of it and what you've built it up to into as kind of this like safe haven utopia where you just think everything's going to be perfect and everything's going to work out. And a place that you have no roots. Right. You, it's just a totally fresh start. There's no history. There's no connotations of pain or trauma. It's just a place that's blank and you can paint whatever paint, you know, whatever picture you want onto that place and you can be whoever you want to be there. Which is a perfect segue into, uh, Michael is an artist mm -hmm. or a, a designer. And I'd like to talk about the peacock, the choice, yeah. the choice of the peacock and Michael and Juliet's different reactions to what it represents. Mm -hmm. Uh, the peacock, I was interested in, you know, so he's an art teacher who, you know, is also an artist and, you know, I kind of imagine that like, ah, he's got, you know, there's one gallery in Santa Fe that like sells some of his stuff and he makes a little bit of money and it's like, you know, it's not, he hasn't been able to like make a go of it as a career, but like, you know, there's a sense that, you know, people like his stuff, he sells, a, you know, maybe he sells a piece every couple months, like, and so when I was imagining where he lived and, you know, this Adobe style dwelling somewhere where you couldn't see any other houses, I was like, well, he's an artist. So I want like a yard that's kind of like filled with art. I mean, I think that made sense to me as where he would live, what it would look like. Um, and the peacock is obviously like, it represents him because, you know, this is a man that spent you know, his entire adult life until he was probably in his mid thirties lying about who he was and suppressing who he was and very actively working to stay under the radar and not make waves, not blow up his situation. And then any, like anything like that, you get to a point where you can't do it anymore. And it just like something, the facade cracks and then the whole thing shatters. And so I loved the idea that he would sculpt this like brutalist metal peacock that he would have in his front yard as kind of a metaphor for his, you know, rebirth. Like a phoenix feels, felt a little too much like on the nose. So I was like, you know, a peacock is this really stunningly bold animal. I mean, it's just, it's drawing attention to itself intentionally. And I liked the idea of him saying, like, this is who I am. I'm this gay man living my truth now. And this peacock is me because I'm, it's not afraid to show, like, just be cheesy, but like your true colors or whatever, you know, like. It's, yeah, a fully yeah. realized yeah. self that was so concealed. Yeah. And it's just like what was, you know, underneath the whole time. And he's now putting it smack in his front yard. So Juliet. Well, one, I think, you know, she's still working through, that's in like the first couple of beats of the play. And she's working through 
this man, you know, like kind of processing this man who's standing in front of her, who is her biological father, but who she hasn't seen in so many years. And I think she's almost offended by the peacock in the beginning. I mm-hmm. think she has this sense that like his choice to live this way is why she didn't have him. And that, you know, mm-hmm. and I think to her, she almost feels the, well, one, she sees the pe- peacock as there's a lot of pain in the peacock. I mean, because part of the pain was his journey to be able to be his true self and like what, you know, the emotional turmoil he put himself through. Um, and so she's kind of feels the peacock is kind of a, I think, kind of like a fuck you because it's yeah. didn't need, you know, it's like not everyone needs to do that. You can live how you want to live and you've made a choice and then you chose to just totally walk away from it when you had already made all these choices, which is unfair to the other people that were affected by, you know, those choices. And I don't think she's put off because she's like so offended by it, but I think she's, she's a little hurt by it. I think it's kind of, you know, when she, if it is him, that she was stopping him from being that. I think in a situation like that, where there's, you know, you don't have those conversations because a character chose to remove themselves from the environment. And so, you know, there's no healthy breakdown over time of like talking through what happened and why things happened, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, like, you know, the same way kids often like blame themselves for their parents getting divorced. I think, you know, if your parent, one of your parents abandoned you, you would 100% as a child probably think you were the cause of that. I mean, like, cause you don't understand the larger implications and dynamics of the circumstances. Yeah. And, you know, I think people inflict a lot of damage on themselves, blaming themselves instead of, you know, trying to look at the situation from the other person's perspective and say, like, they were unhappy because they have these issues in their life or things that they haven't dealt with. And so it's not about me and they're not leaving me because I'm, you know, bad or wrong or whatever. They're leaving because they're not happy with themselves and they haven't worked through their own traumas. I'd also like to talk a little bit about the heat. Yeah. I, I always think of Tennessee Williams mm-hmm. and how the heat always, when people are in heat, they are anxious, they are hot-headed, they are yeah. horny, they, ev- everything is ratcheted up a notch. Yeah. And I think it's so fascinating that Juliet at the beginning would rather sit outside in the heat and suffer. She comments about how unbearable the heat is, but she would still rather, up until she gets sick, and then she finally says, okay, I'll go inside. She Mm -hmm. would rather sit outside and suffer in that heat than go into the house. Yeah. I mean, because I think, I mean, I'm also fascinated by like oppressive heat and how that kind of makes people like, lose their minds often, I think. Um, I mean, totally, like, that's what happens in all males, like, Tennessee Williams plays. Yeah. Like, it kind of makes you crazy if you're, like, in this sweltering heat. And, you know, obviously, there's, like, a connotation of, like, heat and hell and, like, being in a personal hell. And so for Juliet, choosing to stay outside in, like, 105-degree weather, let's say, instead of going into the, you know, the house with the central air, is because to her going into that house and seeing 
like the vestiges of like a happy life that he led without her hmm. is almost hard, like that is almost more hellish to her than sitting outside and suffering in that weather. Because while she's fascinated and she, part of her really wants to see what it looks like inside and where he's lived, I think there's a lot of pain knowing that like he built this whole thing without her and he's had all of the good memories that happened in that house, all of that happiness that she was not a part of, that he did not include her in. And, you know, I think I'm really fascinated with, I mean, I'm very into like interior design and art. and um, So like, I think there's a real, it tells you so much about somebody, how they live, how, what their taste is, what they decorate, what they value and what's important to them. Um, and when I think she's just, she's so scared that she's going to see how wonderful his life was. And then she's going to know that like, she, he didn't really suffer with her, with not having her there. And the pain of that, I think is why she would rather sit outside, at least in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, she can't take it anymore. And there's also not going to be any trace of her. Right. I mean, she was no pictures, yeah. no notches. On right. The, so when she does find the one photo, the there is there's this moment where like she realizes that like she has been there the whole time, and you know the wall starts to come down a little bit more because it wasn't that he erased her; it was that he made choices at the time that he felt were in everyone's best interest, and you know, and I did make them the ages they are because I, you know, I felt you need, it needed to be said at a certain point in time, obviously it's contemporary, but she would have been a child in the mid to late eighties uh, when, you know, when he left. And I, you know, felt that, the, I mean, it's such a wild, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but really, you know, there was no internet, there's no cell phones, there's yeah. no like email, there's no immediate access to people. Like you would have even had 10 years, like in 95, you know, I ran out a car phone, but nobody had a car phone in like 1987. Uh, yeah. I don't even know, you know, so yeah. I think there's a lot there. You could almost disappear completely because unless you like had someone's landline or their address, and you could write them a letter. Like, how were you, how did you stay in touch? Hmm. And so like, I, and also because of the AIDS crisis, I felt in a way his shame of leaving them for a man, leaving his wife and children for another man, um, you could almost understand why he would cut himself off completely because, you know, you have this like horrific global, you know, pandemic going on that's killing gay men. And here he's basically coming, he's come out as a gay man and he's abandoning his straight life for another man. And why that would play into the decision to just vanish, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I'd like to talk a little bit about when you are creating characters. Do you tend to start with one character first and fill in the other characters? Is there one that kind of comes from your subconscious into your consciousness first and fades away and then it's an, it, it's an idea first? How does, how does that process go? So I think it varies from project to project, but with this, I think it's, it started with Juliet. I was really interested 
in ex having an adult child come back and meet the father that abandoned her. So to me, the psychology of that was really interesting, somebody in that position. I think we've seen a lot of stories about couples where like one leaves and abandons the other for whatever reason. But I don't, I couldn't really recall something recent that was a child who was abandoned. And then as an adult, basically confronting the person that abandoned them. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested in that idea. Um, you know, a lot of, in some ways it was inspired by the movie uh, Far From Heaven. But you know, the dynamic between Julianne Moore and Dennis Quaid is really, you know, the main thrust of that movie and the conflict is that he's gay and that he ultimately abandons her. And I kind of was like, but what about the kids? Like we have these kids there that are kind of peripheral because it's Julianne's story. And, but what happens to them when they grow up? And their father abandoned them to be a gay man, to live his truth as a gay man. And so I, I wanted to kind of delve into that. And obviously I like changed the time period into that and it's not like mm -hmm. the same characters, but that was, I think part of the inspiration for it was, you know, where do these kids end up and how does that event in your childhood shape the rest of your life? And so I started with that idea with Juliet and having her come into him to meet him. And so I guess she was, originally and uh, you know and she has a couple of beats where she's you know on stage without michael and so even though it's like 100 percent a two-hander i feel like she's a little bit more it's a little bit more from her point of view just because she's the outsider coming into the situation and yeah so i, I mean but in terms of how i think they came from my subconscious i mean i feel like all characters when you write characters you know they're pieces of your soul that you're putting there and you know like you can hear them how they speak and you know you get an idea of their morals and how they think and how they view the world and like once you can kind of hone in on that it's really easy to just tap into that their voices and their energy I think but you know but this is I will also say um I wrote this as a short story like many years ago um huh. Yeah, like just as an exercise, I'm, you know, I'm like a screenwriter, TV writer, play writer now, I guess, playwright. Um, but I like, I had a phase where I was like really into writing short stories, um, just like experimentally. And I wrote basically this as a short story. And I just, that's not my medium of choice now. Um, and so I was really interested to see what I could do to turn it into a play. And so I did kind of have all of those ideas and all of those inspirations in the short story. So it was easy to kind of comb through it and kind of take what was relevant and what wasn't and kind of lace them into this and build out this one act. We kind of inadvertently came back to talking about the characters that aren't seen in the story. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what you did with the movie, thinking about the kids and well no one's talking about them no one's honing in on this totally different experience yeah. and trauma that will set in for them oh yeah i mean which you know like i think they're supposed to be really little i can't remember exactly how old they were in that movie but like it's just an example of you know 
it's an example of how we have these, sometimes these formative events when we're really young and we don't fully realize how long reaching the consequences are for our adult selves and the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and then I liked the idea of like her being a child who had, you know, only partial information at the time. I mean, she was like, she's supposed to be like five or six when he leaves. So she's so little, you know, it's not like an older kid where like, who's a little, like, you know, she knows something's up. She understands obviously like, then there's the rumors and there's like kind of like the bullying. So like she under, ultimately understands who he was and why he left and the kind of shame around it or the shame that other people are projecting onto it, especially and towards her, you know, herself and her mom and her sister. And, but, you know, like what are but the long reaching like kind of branches and tentacles of that event and how it's, you know, informed kind of the rest of her life in a sense of how she views herself in the world and how, you know, her self-worth and her self-esteem are kind of all wrapped up in it. Because I think when you are left like that as a kid, like it's, it's going to really change how you view the world and how you view yourself in a profound way that you're never going to be fully able to reconcile unless you can maybe reunite and have those conversations you never got to have and reframe it for yourself and ask the questions that you never got to ask. Derek, thank you so much for joining me today. I, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And if you haven't already, please listen to Vista Grande available on Standby for Places, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat.